With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Robert M. Price from Bible Geek, and I'm doing a bit of a special uh, tonight. Uh, and uh, the um, uh, program arose from the suggestion of a friend of mine who uh, named Neil Roddy, uh, an old pal of mine, uh, who uh, asked me to devote a program to something I often refer to but have not often enough explained. And that is, uh, why do I think that um, the so-called ecclesiastical redactor uh, of uh, the New Testament, as Bultmann called him, uh, was none other than Polycarp of Smyrna, a second century uh, bishop uh, and, and from Asia Minor. And uh, it, it's, uh, Boltman never suggested that, but let me tell you why I go along with uh, some scholars who more recently have suggested that, and this is by no means my discovery. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's entirely that of... Uh, uh, David Trobish and uh, Stefan Huller, and there are probably others. Uh, it's it's sort of a, a latter-day supplement to an argument about the New Testament canon and its origin that um, uh, it came out uh, oh, back in the 40s by uh, John Knox, not the Scottish Protestant reformer. Uh, but, uh, and the really good books about this, hard to find. Uh, I go into this in some of my books, like in the introduction to the pre-Nicene New Testament, but I'm pretty sure I do elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, what I'd like to do is to, to explain it now. Um, one thing in the background of this that is, is sort of an important building block. The, um, there is an epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, uh, which is kind of a cover letter uh, for uh, a collection of the Ignatian epistles that he's sending to them. And uh, there are uh, th there's a passage or two in Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Uh, which uh, sounds an awful lot like uh, some text in the pastoral epistles. Now, you know what they are, right? They are supposedly by Paul, but critical scholars of long, ever since Schleiermacher and then Overbeck, these guys uh, in the, uh, the 19th century, 
uh, had uh, realized that they couldn't be by Paul. And these guys are pretty conservative on other things. Uh, they uh, didn't go along with uh, F.C. Bauer. Well, he was a bit later. They didn't go as far as he would, much less the Dutch radicals. So uh, Schleiermacher, for instance, did accept the Pauline authorship of uh, the rest of the uh, epistles attributed to him. And, uh, but not, uh, uh, first Timothy. Actually, his arguments apply just as much to second Timothy and Titus as was soon pointed out. But it's, it's really sort of more of the same. Now, what, what did he say? Uh, well, uh, he and others thought that, okay, Paul wasn't the author. Uh, and they didn't dare venture a suggestion as to what individual it might be. After all, I mean, whoever it was is writing under the pseudonym of Paul, so it's not going to broadcast what his name actually was. Uh, but uh, some scholars since Schleiermacher pointed out that the similarities between Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians and the pseudo-Pauline pastoral epistles uh, might be taken not as Polycarp quoting the pastorals that had already existed, because they were by Paul earlier than Polycarp, but rather maybe it was the other way around. Maybe Polycarp was the pseudonymous author of the pastorals. Uh, and uh, P.N. Harrison, uh, in a book called The Problem of the Pastoral Epistles, argued this, and uh, I think uh, Henry Cadbury in the 20th century argued the same way, and uh, it's uh, it's never been viewed as some kind of wacko theory, not that I've got anything against wacky theories, as you know, but this has always been seriously considered. Uh, I mean, you don't have to believe that Polycarp was the pseudonymous writer, but uh, to, to believe that there was a pseudonymous writer, right? That That's a whole different thing. I mean, that's, it, it, they're related theories, but uh, the, um, but the, the authorship of Polycarp uh, is uh, not required. I mean, you can find that unconvincing if, if it seems so to you and still be convinced that the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus, uh, are not by Paul. So, Polycarp might have authored the pastoral epistles. That's that's one thing that, that we need to establish uh, as part of a theoretical basis for this. Uh, and Polycarp was a very famous bishop and, and was eventually martyred, and there are various uh, scriptural-style accounts of his martyrdom that are already legend-laden. So big, big name in the early church. Okay, now let's talk about his great enemy, because uh, he was the, the greatest contemporary foe of Marcion of Sinope uh, and uh, in Asia Minor, uh, same town that uh, the uh, um, Cynic philosopher um, uh, um, Diogenes was from. I don't know if there's any connection, but what the heck. Um, now, Marcion w was actually a contemporary, or I should put it the other way around, Polycarp was a living contemporary of Marcion, who was active, oh, right at the end of the first and on into the second century. 
and uh, they they were they overlapped at any, at any rate. They were both adults at the same time. And there was a famous story that Polycarp met Marcion when both of them happened to be in Rome. And uh, Marcion knew who Polycarp was and approached him and said, do you recognize me? And we don't know whether he meant, do you know me by my face? Do you know who I am? Or do you recognize my standing? Because during that visit, Marcion was throwing his hat into the ring to become the new bishop of Rome. Well, Mars, it didn't work, by the way. They uh, thought he was too much of a heretic. Uh, but uh, Polycarp was already uh, an opponent of Marcion's theory. I'll tell you what that was in a second. And he says, oh yeah, sure, I recognize you as the son of the devil. And uh, that didn't go over too well. What did he not like about old Marcion? Well, Marcion was a Paulinist, the greatest Paulinist of the early church. Uh, he uh, believed that uh, Jesus had named and chosen the twelve disciples, uh, but that they were all uh, too dim-witted to, to really grasp what he was saying. Now, why would you get that idea? Well, <laughs> just read the Gospel of Mark, right? Uh, the disciples only appear as straight men uh, saying, uh, either asking Jesus a question or making a stupid comment that he has to correct. They, especially Peter, have the role of uh, Dr. Watson in the Sherlock Holmes stories. I say, Holmes, how did you deduce that little Sally was the Shropshire Slasher? Elementary, my dear Watson. Uh, well, he's explaining it for the reader, right? Uh, Dr. Watson is the reader. They may have the same questions. Um, so, and, and Holmes can't turn, he can't break the fourth wall. He can't speak directly to the readers. In case you're wondering out there, no, it's got to be worked into the narrative. And, and so the disciples appear that way and pretty much only that way in Mark. Uh, they're picked up and brushed off a bit by uh, Luke and Matthew, who use Mark, but feel free to change him up, right? But the disciples come off, really, like a bunch of ninnies and morons in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Marcion said, wait a second, are we supposed to put our faith in these guys? Of course, they were long dead by that time, but the point is uh, the uh, the uh, Jewish Christians and some others uh, looked to the Twelve as their figureheads, uh, them and James the Just, the so-called brother of the Lord. And uh, Marcion is saying, if you trace your beliefs and your traditions to these guys, you know, no wonder you're screwed up. Don't you see the radically new approach that Jesus brought? He wasn't talking about, he wasn't speaking for uh, the Old Testament God, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever, uh, who, who created the world and gave the, the law to Moses. Now, all of that stuff is true. He accepted, basically, the, the historical accuracy of, of the Jewish scriptures. 
he said, yeah, that's right. The world was created by uh, Jehovah, the Hebrew God who gave the law, and, and the law is good as far as it goes. And this God is, is basically, well, if not good, just. Uh, he is going to judge sinners and so forth. And he did give Moses laws of retaliation, capital punishment, and seems like kind of a rough customer, like uh, an ancient king, right? These guys couldn't go soft on anybody. They had to execute judgment and execute the uh, the criminals if need be. Well, that seemed a bit, uh, I mean, maybe human leaders have to do that, given the way the world is. But Marcion said, that's not the father of Jesus. That's not the God Jesus talked about. Uh, and what did he say after all? He prays and uh, says, of, uh, Father, thank you for hiding these things from the intellectuals and revealing them to, to children. For such was your gracious will. He says, uh, no one knows the Father except for the Son and any to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Hold on a minute. Could he be talking about the Old Testament deity? Nobody knows him. How about Moses? How about the prophets? How about Joshua? What could you mean? Uh, and similarly, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son has made him known. What? Nobody's ever seen God? How about Nadab and Abihu? How about Moses, who used to chat with them on a daily basis in the, the tent of meeting? Uh, the, the writer of Deuteronomy says that uh, Moses was the only one who talked face to face with God as a man talks with his friend. What did the... Uh, what did uh, the, the uh, prologue of John mean? Well, they weren't talking about that God. Jesus wasn't. Oh, yeah, he knew. I mean, uh, he even says later in the book uh, that Abraham saw my day and was glad to see it and so forth. Uh, and remember, Marcion didn't think they were all false prophets or anything. They just didn't predict Jesus. But uh, he had a kind of uh, neutral to friendly attitude. He wasn't an anti-Semite or even anti-Jewish. He said, the God who created this world and gave the law, you know, he is going to send his Messiah, a nationalistic leader of Jews who will uh, finally take up their cause and restore independence and give them dominance. More power to him, but that's not Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the son of this hitherto undisclosed deity, uh, the loving father who judges no one, who has no wrath, who uh, is a forgiving God. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, you don't need, if you uh, accept him as your God, uh, then you don't have to worry about all the niceties of the Torah. That's somebody else's mail you're reading. You don't have to be burdened with that. And so this was quite a departure, and Marcion figured the Twelve just couldn't understand that. 
you see the same thing, by the way, in other religious movements closer to our day, like the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said various things that were so radical, he was the only one in his movement that did accept them. Now, well, let's cut those books out of the Bible. Oh, <laughs> wait a minute, Marty. That's going a little too far, etc. It's not that surprising that, that you would have that. And uh, Marcion figured, well, they did. And this is where Paul came in. Jesus said, oh boy, he ascends to heaven and he sees what these clowns are doing. And he says, this is getting off to a bad start. I got to find somebody else with half a brain who can understand my gospel. And this is why he appeared to uh, Saul of Tarsus and says basically to him, look, you're working for me now. And despite himself, Saul, also known as Paul, uh, makes a turnabout and becomes a Christian apostle. And this is something that it surprises me how people don't notice how odd this is. The big hoopla about Jesus picking the twelve to spread the gospel all over the world. Well, then... Uh, I will give you 12 thrones to sit on to judge the tribes of Israel. Where does Paul come in? This guy from left field, he wasn't even a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and, and he is the apostle to the Gentiles? I mean, that takes some explaining. Uh, but nobody did in the early church. Oh, yeah, yeah, the 13th apostle all of a sudden. I mean, even when Judas died and they had to replace him, they didn't look around for Paul. Or Jesus didn't uh, tell him, hey, you, I got this guy to take Judas's place. No, Jesus had to appear to Paul himself and say, you know, come on over to my side. This is very strange. And uh, at least Marcion had some kind of an explanation for it. Uh, the, the first ones were bad picks, uh, but I underestimated. Uh, I overestimated them. I uh, thought it would be easier. It would all be clearer to them, but, uh, but you you know what it says in Mark. He tells parables, and they say, Gee, Lord, what does the parable mean? And indignantly, Jesus says, What? What? You mean you don't understand this parable? How are you going to understand any parable? Okay, here's what it means. Well, that's what Marcion's talking about, but Paul did. And, and Paul understood that Jesus was the representative, unsuspected, unexpected, of emissary of a God not yet revealed, the Father. And, uh, that, uh, that, so you had two gods. And, um, uh, the one was the God of Judaism. The one, the other was the God of Jesus. And uh, Jesus, why did Jesus die in Marcion's reckoning? Well, he had to gain the right to make those who would believe in him sons and daughters of, of the loving father of Jesus. Uh, he had to pay uh, like manumitting slaves or ransoming uh, hostages. And uh, he made a, a deal with Jehovah saying, I will give up my life on the cross uh, to buy the freedom 
uh, of your creatures uh, so that whoever among them wants to can leave you and be adopted the sons and daughters of my father. And, okay, uh, he, he did. In fact, uh, well, yeah. Uh, let me leave it at that. And uh, where did he get the idea that Paul thought there was another God? Well, uh, maybe it had something to do with this. Uh, he said, uh, he says in Second uh, Corinthians, to this day, a veil lies over the hearts uh, of uh, of the Jews or Jewish Christians. Hard to tell what he means. Uh, whenever the old covenant is read. Uh, and they don't see what it's really telling them about the new covenant. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And, and so, wait a minute. Oh, it says the God of this age has blinded their minds so that they don't see the glory of Christ awaiting them. Uh, the God of this age? What? what? Is there uh, some other God? Oh, Yeah. They're, they're the God of this age or of this world, you could translate it either way, he is the creator, the one who gave the laws in the Old Testament, etc. Uh, and uh, apparently he doesn't really relish getting rid of all of his creatures. And uh, so he, he makes it difficult for people to abandon uh, Jehovah to go with the father of Jesus. And uh, also... You mean the law, the Torah, was given not by God, but by some, the, you know, the ultimate God, but rather by some subordinate divine being? Well, uh, in Galatians, what do we read? Uh, that, uh, that why was Moses involved in promulgating the law on Mount Sinai? Why would you need a mediator? Between two individuals, don't you need a mediator as a representative, for instance, in collective bargaining, bargaining, someone who can represent the, the, uh, be the spokesman for, uh, a group, uh, in, uh, in relations with another group? He says, well, angels gave the law to the people of Israel. I thought it was God. Well, not the Christian God. Okay, that's Marcion's view. And what did Marcion have to do with the formation of the Bible? Well, Jews, of course, by this time, already had the canon of Scripture, the official list, all uh, marked out. And uh, it's the same books that are in the Protestant Old Testament today. Uh, and uh, But... Uh, uh, Marcion said, that is a Jewish book. It, it doesn't predict Jesus. You have to use hermeneutical ventriloquism on passages that are not about Jesus or even about any Messiah. You have to twist the text and yank them out of context to make it look like 
uh, they're talking about Jesus, but they're not. Just just take a closer look in the original historical context. Let's uh, let's not presume to co-opt and appropriate. Talk about cultural appropriation, right? Let, let's not try to steal the the Bible of Judaism. No, it's uh, there's a lot of good stuff in it, admittedly, uh, but it's not a Christian book. I mean, you could say there's a lot of good stuff in the Quran, but you're not going to staple it onto the Bible, right? That's somebody else's uh, religious uh, book that teaches a different religion from ours. Okay, so uh, were Christians then to be left without a, a scripture that was uniquely Christian? No, why should that be? Uh, so Marcion said, well, of course, if we're going to compile a Christian scripture, who are we going to go to but Jesus and Paul, his only true apostle? And so he said, okay, here it is. I, we're going to have a twofold canon the uh, the uh, the Evangelion, the book of the gospel, and what gospel was it? A shorter version of Luke, uh, and I, I'm persuaded with many scholars that it was uh, uh, it, it was the original, and that uh, somebody just to let the cat out of the bag, Polycarp, added various materials to it, and henceforth. Catholic Christians claimed the reverse had happened, that uh, the uh, the version we know as canonical, the longer one. Oh, yeah, that was the original. It was old Marcion who chopped stuff out that was inconsistent with his views. It looks like it was the other way around, that uh, Catholics padded it out. Uh, to, uh, to to make it sound less Marcionite and to, to tie it to the Old Testament. Well, the other part of the Marcionite scripture was the Apostolicon, the book of the Apostle, and of course that meant Paul. Uh, he, at least his, the Marcionite Apostolicon eventually had ten epistles attributed to Paul. Uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, um, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, uh, and Philemon. I hope I got them all there. And uh, because he didn't have First and Second Timothy and Titus, because these are anti-Marcionite works written later, condemning, if you know how to read it. Um, Marcion and uh, and Gnostics. You notice at the end of one of them it says, "Beware of uh, the of uh, those who uh, who possess the so-called gnosis or knowledge uh, and, uh, and and the contradictions, the antitheses of their teaching." Well, Marcion wrote another book called The Antitheses, where he pointed out differences, contradictions between the Old and New Testament. The Antitheses. And Marcion was sort of a cousin to the Gnostics, had a lot in common with them. So the, the pastoral epistles are written uh, later to counter Marcion's version of Paul. And needless to say, he had no interest in those three letters. They were they uh, promoted a different kind of Christianity, the mixed-up kind, in his opinion. Um, 
Well, this uh, caught on like wildfire all over the Mediterranean, and so did the Marcionite Church. Actually, they called the local meeting places synagogues of the Marcionites, because synagogue is just a Greek word for a, an assembly hall. And um, so, uh, so they they started their own branch of Christianity that was quickly, fantastically successful. This worried Catholic leaders, especially Polycarp, who thought this was a demonic invention. This was heresy. It, this was blasphemy. Uh, and so they polemicized against Marcion, like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, uh, Irenaeus, and various others wrote at great length about what was wrong with uh, Marcion and, and his teaching and all that. Well, uh, that didn't seem to work too well. Uh, we can see in the second century a kind of boycotting of Paul. Uh, Tertullian, writing around uh, 200 A.D. or C.E., uh, calls Marcion the apostle of, uh, calls Paul the apostle of Marcion and the apostle of the heretics. He even says that Marcion discovered the letter to the Galatians. Well, he might just be talking about the first time somebody showed him a copy. But I tend to think it, it sounds kind of like Joseph Smith saying he <coughs> discovered the Book of Mormon when, in fact, he wrote it. Um, and uh, so we don't really know who wrote them, though Paul's name is on these. And Marcion had a short version, a shorter version of all of these epistles. In fact, there's a couple of good reconstructions of them. Uh, one, I think, is called the First New Testament by Jason Bedune. That is a capital B, small e, capital D, small u-h-n, uh, the First New Testament, where he goes through exhaustively the differences between the longer and the shorter versions and how to explain them. And then he has a breakdown of... Uh, of the, the text of each of the epistles showing what uh, must have been added by the anti-Marcionites. Well, uh, the Polycarp and his brethren were no fools. They said, uh, if you can't beat them, well, don't join them, but maybe co-opt them. And he, so he uh, said, Look, uh, we uh, want to keep the Old Testament because we do believe that Jesus' Father was the creator, the lawgiver, Jehovah. So yeah, uh, this is our heritage too. We're keeping it. We're interpreting it uh, as being about Jesus, if you know how to read it and all that. But having a uniquely, specifically Christian scripture, that ain't a bad idea one that will explicitly address our beliefs and the challenges we face. Uh, so what's going to be in it? Well, Marcion started the ball rolling. Uh, and uh, so they, and, and it was his scripture that uh, was the first New Testament, and people liked it. So uh, it seems like a single individual created the first edition uh, around 150 to 160 A.D. that contained uh, 
all of Marcion's 11 books, right? The 10 epistles and the one gospel. But uh, more stuff, too. This was what uh, F.C. Bauer used to call the Catholicizing tendency, uh, an attempt to to uh, merge, well, he thought, law-keeping Jewish Christianity and law-free Pauline Christianity. And the principles separating the two recur in uh, the, the conflict between uh, Old Testament retaining Catholicism and uh, New Testament only, Paul only Marcionism. Uh, so it, 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 the idea of bringing them together, it, you can call Catholicizing, especially when Polycarp was doing it, because what, because what he's trying to do is to seduce Marcionites into the Catholic Church. Hey, look, we're accepting your New Testament, but, you know, there's even more to it. So what did they do? Well, I've already said that uh, somebody added plenty of material to the gospel that the Marcionites used, uh, which probably Polycarp named the gospel according to Luke after he had considerably padded it out. Uh, and uh, he said, however... This is associated with Paul. Uh, they circulated the notion that um, that though Paul wrote no gospel, he did have an associate, his traveling personal physician, Luke, uh, and uh, that he must have written down the preaching of Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Uh, similarly, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, you've got... Uh, he added Matthew uh, under the uh, pre pretense, I should say, that uh, it was written by one of the twelve disciples, Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, however, I think that is a pun based on the word mathetes or disciple, or the, which is uh, there's a noun and a verb version of it, and it's a favorite word. Of the in the Gospel of Matthew, it doesn't occur in the other Gospels. So I think this was a wink to the reader. Uh, and it is uh, what did he do to that one? Well, it's hard to say, but it does kind of look to me like he pretty much starts off blasting Marcion and Paul. You know how in uh, the Sermon on the Mount he says. Uh, don't get the idea, I, Jesus says, I, I, that I came to abolish the scriptures. That's not the way they usually translate it. What do they say? Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Wait a minute. Paul never says that, right? Um, but Marcion did. He wanted to cut loose the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Uh, so this isn't talking about Paul. It's talking about the great latter-day Paulinist, um, namely Marcion. And, and uh, of course, the, it goes on to say uh, that uh, whoever uh, uh, breaks or relaxes the least of these commandments... The same shall be called least, you know, lowest on the totem pole, in the kingdom of heaven. 
Oh, yeah, if he teaches others to do so, right? Yeah, uh, to drop the commandments. But whoever keeps them and teaches others to keep them, uh, he'll be number one in the kingdom of heaven. Who's he talking about? Somebody that says not just that you don't need to keep the laws, but that Jesus came to stop you from continuing to keep the laws. It was the mission of Jesus. It's like you read in Romans. Uh, Jesus Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Oh, that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with here. Uh, so I think uh, he's added some material uh, to um, to the Gospel of Matthew. I could go on a little bit more, but I know I'm in the weeds already. Um, okay, what about Mark? Boy, this gets really interesting. Stephen Huller has this fascinating theory. He says that a Carpocratian Gnostic leader named Marcellina uh, was in Rome at one point when they had a great convocation of different types of Christians. And uh, there she met Polycarp, who, again, was a big guy known everywhere, and that she um, would have brought with her, to give out copies, presumably, uh, the gospel that she used in Alexandria, Egypt, where she was from and where there were loads of Carpocratian Gnostics. Now, what gospel was this? Well, there is a gospel featuring Salome, the m mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. Uh, she and Jesus are the dialogue partners in a gospel known as the Gospel of according to the Egyptians. I'm sorry this is so confusing, but you may know that in the Nag Hammadi collection there is a gospel of the Egyptians. It's not the same one. Uh, this one was also known, apparently, as the gospel of Basilides, a second century Gnostic. And uh, this was known yet again by another title, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and uh, it was apparently a, a somewhat longer version of our Gospel of Mark, the canonical one. But it did have some extra stuff, including the presence of Salome in it. We don't have the whole thing, but Morton Smith claimed to have discovered uh, an excerpt from a letter by Clement of Alexandria to another Christian named uh, Theodore, who had um, been shown a copy of this Gospel of Mark, this Gospel of the Egyptians, by uh, Carpocratian Gnostic Christians. And there was stuff in it he didn't like. Uh, and he wrote, he uh, quotes some of it in his letters to Clement of Alexandria, who writes back and says, well, in fact, there is this, this long version of, of Mark uh, that uh, we don't let everybody see because there is some stuff that they wouldn't understand. Uh, some people aren't ready for it. And he says, for instance, this passage, and he quotes one where Jesus raises a young man from the dead and baptizes him, uh, naked and stays with him the whole night and taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, so they're not going to understand this. So yeah, keep it under your turban. Yeah, there is such a thing, but they've probably distorted it anyhow. Well, Huller says it makes sense to him that that's the gospel Marcelina would have taken to Rome and surely would have shown it to Polycarp. Well, the idea here is that Polycarp uh, had uh, made a copy, uh, but uh, for publication, cut out this extra controversial stuff. And finally, the Gospel of John. This is where the actual phrase, the ecclesiastical redactor, comes into the discussion. Of course, it's not actually in the text, right? Rudolf Bultmann uh, coined the term. And his, his uh, argument, which I think is sound, is that the Gospel of John uh, was originally a Gnostic work uh, that was sort of uh, retooled from uh, its original use among the Mandeans, the, the Gnostic sect of John the Baptist. Uh, and uh, a member of their group converted to Christianity, Gnostic Christianity, and, and added some stuff. But uh, subsequent to that, a more Catholic Christian had to add more material. Uh, a good bit of it, actually. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the uh, true vine discourse, uh, the, the stuff in chapter 5, I think, about uh, how the Eucharist is the true flesh and blood of Jesus that you have to consume uh, or, or you have no life in you. Uh, the, the original Gnostic version of John taught realized eschatology, a famous Gnostic motif. That is, forget about any second coming of Christ. <laughs> no. Forget about any night of the living dead resurrection. That's just a lot of nonsense. What they were really saying was, figuratively, that if you hear the voice of Jesus on the judgment day, which is now and every day that you stand before God, deciding which way you will go, uh, if you hear his voice and repent, you have risen from the dead. Are you going to rise in a moldering corpse body one day? No. Why would you want to? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What, do you want to get old and decrepit and die all over again? No, come on. Uh, and uh, so the ecclesiastical redactor was the anonymous person that padded this out, who you might say sanitized it for the use of Catholic Christians. Though you still can see a lot of Gnosticism in it. Um, who might this have been that prepared uh, 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 an Orthodox Catholic version of the four Gospels? Well, there might be a bit of a hint in chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, whoever, I'm the true vine, whoever abides in me, uh, the same will bear much fruit, which a phrase which happens to be in Greek, um, Carpus polu, polycarp, much fruit. Uh, coincidence? I don't think so. Uh, could be, could be, but uh, makes you wonder. Uh, 
Plus, uh, it looks... Now, let's go back to this theory of Harrison and Cadbury and others that that uh, Polycarp was the uh, author of the pastoral epistles. In one of those, in, I believe, the second Timothy, uh, he, uh, Paul, quote-unquote, says, Now, when you come to visit me, Tim, uh, be sure you bring the cloak I left with Carpus. Uh, Carpus, interesting. That's half a polycarp who is writing under the cloak of pseudonymity. Uh, you can't prove it, but just looks kind of funny to me. Well, what about the epistles? As I've said, Marcion had shorter editions of ten of them. And uh, now if we say that uh, that the epistles and the gospels were padded out, by a Catholic who was an opponent of Marcion and had the clout to circulate his own edition of the New Testament, which became the edition a couple hundred years later. Many were used until then. Uh, who's that going to be? Well, probably Polycarp. Really, there is no other known candidate. And since it had to be somebody who uh, was known in the early church, I think you can pretty much narrow it down to Polycarp. But I'm not done yet, though you probably wish I were. Um, let's see. There is a Winsome Monroe, a late great scholar from South Africa. She uh, She's the one that got me into the Jesus Seminar, by the way, letter of recommendation. Uh, she um, wrote a, a great book called Authority in Paul and Peter, uh, the discovery of a pastoral stratum in the Pauline epistles and First Peter. Well, she goes through all of these uh, letters and shows how, uh, through various criteria, and I won't bore you into a coma with, uh, maybe some other time, uh, various criteria to show that uh, there are interpolations into uh, the uh, pastor. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the so-called Pauline epistles, Romans, Galatians, etc., etc., uh, that don't match the context, the usual Pauline vocabulary, uh, certain theological ideas. And that these all, and the same thing in First Peter, uh, they all tend to domesticate Paul or Peter, to make them, to, to calm them down and make them look less radical, to make them look more churchy. Uh, and in fact, the uh, uh, the the same is true of our favorites, the pastoral epistles. All of them. Harrison did these amazing vocabulary statistics, and he says the Greek vocabulary in the three pastoral epistles are really considerably different than the other ten letters ascribed to Paul, but match very closely the so-called apostolic fathers. Uh, there's Polycarp, Ignatius, Barnabas, the Didache, and so on which are a generation or two later, which implies that, you guessed it, uh, the uh, that the pastoral epistles and these 
interpolations that have the same flavor to them were all added uh, by the, the same person in the second century, and that would be Polycarp. Now, C.C. Torrey, Charles Cutler Torrey, I guess back in the 30s, he did some fascinating work uh, where, among many other things, I did an article in the Journal of Higher Criticism about this uh, a year or two ago. Uh, he believed that acts could be divided into two works. First acts uh, would have covered uh, chapters 1 through 15. That is, it would have ended with the so-called apostolic council where Paul and Barnabas had to go to Jerusalem to defend their practice of letting Gentile converts to Christianity uh, not keep the Torah. You wouldn't have to get circumcised and, and keep all the Jewish laws if you wanted to become a Christian and you had been a pagan. Uh, it's fine for Jews who became Christians, you know, keep it up, it's your heritage. But if you, you have been a pagan and you uh, don't... Uh, cotton to this, all these changes you would have to make, but you believe in Jesus and you're baptized, that's really all you need to worry about. Well, that's what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Uh, but Pharisee Christians said, no, nothing doing. If these pagans want to convert to the faith of the Jewish Messiah, uh, they've got to keep the Jewish law like the rest of us. Well, James the Just uh, uh chairs a debate between the factions and Peter backs up Paul and he says, yeah, and he tells the story of Cornelius and he said, I didn't think Gentiles could become Christians that easily either, but the Holy Spirit had uh, news for me. And uh, so James the Just, who has taken over leadership of the Jerusalem church, says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're not going to force the Gentile converts to keep the whole Torah, but here are four rules that they really ought to observe so as not to scandalize and offend Jews. Uh, I mean, they have enough trouble with the Jesus business if they see Jesus believers among the Gentiles saying, out of hell with the Torah. What are they going to think? I mean, let's not make Christianity even more repulsive to, to outsiders. So what do you say? Uh, don't eat meat with the blood not drained. That's, of course, one of Noah's commandments, too. Uh, don't eat meat offered to idols. Uh, don't um, uh, permit porneia, uh, which is sort of an ambiguous word, uh, meaning uh, sexual unseemliness. We're not really sure what they had in mind. And uh, I'm not sure what the fourth one was. I know it's different in two different textual traditions. But uh, this is... This ought to be pretty easy to do. This isn't going to require a, a whole change in your lifestyle. And they send Paul and Silas out to all of their Gentile churches saying, okay, here, here's the compromise. Here's what you're going to have to do. And that's how first acts would have ended. And, of course, mainly it's about Peter. Paul is introduced in it, but it's mainly about Peter. Uh, well, what was second Acts? Well, of course, that's chapters 16 through 28. Naturally, 
things weren't divided into chapters back then, right? But in terms of our chapter numbering, that's that's what they'd be. Uh, this is all about Paul. And there are, uh, as early as F.C. Bauer and the Tubingen School, they couldn't help observing that uh, everything said about Peter is repeated about Paul. Each is a pioneer missionary to the Gentiles. Each has a miraculous prison escape. Uh, each... Uh, heals the sick uh, in, in a spectacular, almost superstitious way. Peter heals people on whom his shadow falls as he passes them in the street. Uh, Paul's uh, handkerchiefs uh, taken to people to touch them. It's right out of Oral Roberts. They, they get healed. Both heal a lame man. Both raise somebody from the dead. Both have a contest with a sorcerer. Uh, in first acts, it is, um, um, uh, what am I thinking? It's, uh, uh, it's, it's Simon Magus versus Philip and then Peter. But in second acts, uh, it would be, um, the Pythonus in Philippi in chapter 16. Now, is, is this all coincidence? I don't think so. Uh, Bauer didn't either, and he said, now, isn't it obvious this writer is trying to heal the breach between, as he put it, law-observant Jewish Christians and law-free Gentile Christians? The idea being, hey, you guys look to Peter as your figurehead. He kept the Torah and you excoriate Paul as the Antichrist and a false apostle because he says not to. Uh, but uh, uh, you say he persecuted the church even. Um, but uh, those of you who think Paul ought to be your figurehead, uh, you um, uh, say Peter was a coward and denied Jesus. You're, you're vilifying him. You're making him sound stupid. Uh, now, let's face it. Uh, th that stuff pales in comparison to this incredible resume of miracles and firsts that, that are almost identical between the two. So, don't you see, if you're a fan of Peter... You've got to recognize that uh, Paul was God's servant, too. And you Paulinists, you, you can't be running down Peter. He did everything Paul did. You know, you, you they stand or fall together. So let's be one big happy family here. Uh, well, that does correspond to somebody adding a second act onto the end of first act. It, it fits the uh, Bauer paradigm completely, only it pushes it uh, ahead a couple of generations to where it's not Ebionite Jewish Christians versus Pauline uh, law-free Christians. Now it's the Paulinist Marcionite Christians versus the Old Testament embracing Catholic Christians. But the, the point is the same. Now, what about the general epistles? Let's take a fast survey of that. Why are they even there? There's good stuff in all of them, uh, but they're all short, 
you, some um, church leaders in the even in the fourth century, when they were trying to nail down the whole canon table of contents, had never heard of some of them. Uh, second John, third John, neither one of them is a whole page long. Where did you get this thing? Out of a gum machine, folded up. Uh, and uh, but okay, eventually. They they gave us the so-called Catholic or general epistles. And what are they? Well, there's James, there's Jude, and there's First and Second Peter, and First, Second, and Third John. Now these names ought to ring a bell, right? Because James and Jude were two of the, were the names of two of the brothers of Jesus. Um, Peter, obvious, right? Uh, and, uh, and what about the Johannine epistles? Well, that's a little tricky because those are technically anonymous. There's no name on those. It just says the elder to so and so. Uh, but everybody always thought it was John the elder who's mentioned in various early church statements. Well, um, Trobish says this is no coincidence. These epistles appear at all along with the the ten Marcionite Paulines and the three pastorals uh, by Polycarp, uh, and uh, uh, but still the focus there is on Paul and Paul alone. Uh, how about uh, epistles from anybody else in the early church? Are there any? Well, uh, slim pickings there, but they said. Oh, here's one from a guy named Jude, and here's one from a guy named James. Granted, they're both common names, but why shouldn't they be uh, the ones that are characters in, in the New Testament? Peter, obvious, um, uh, John, etc. What they're trying to do is to come up with writings ostensibly by other New Testament characters, as minor as they may be. I'm pretty surprised they didn't throw in uh, the epistle of Barnabas for the same reason, but they didn't. Okay, uh, I guess uh, that's probably too much of a dose. But nonetheless, Polycarp is the... Oh, oh yeah, one other odd little thing. Who was Theophilus to whom Luke and Acts are addressed or dedicated? Well, loads of guys named that too, but what do you know? Polycarp had a protege who was the bishop of, uh, of Antioch named, you guessed it, Theophilus. Uh, so you hear all this stuff, oh well, it means lover of God, and so Luke and Acts are addressed to any Christian that loves God. No, I, I don't buy that. He's thinking of, of, uh, of this particular Antiochene bishop. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, it's, uh, it, it, a lot of pieces of the puzzle would fit together real well if Polycarp was the ecclesiastical redactor who, um, uh, wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, um, Acts, uh, first Acts, and, uh, padded out a bunch of these other books. And so that is why I uh, refer to the ecclesiastical redactor as Polycarp. I think uh, Stephen Huller and David Trobish were quite correct.
Okay, I'll see you on a more conventional question and answer session of the Bible Geek as soon as you help me by filling up the rain barrel again. But I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.